Voyage. After nearly being washed overboard and then drowned beneath a massive wave, Cameron has whiplashed from abject fear to the depths of despair over the sudden, shocking loss of one of his crewmen as he and Hiroki search the surging seas for any sign of Charlie. And then, just when all seemed lost. Here comes Charlie. Oh my God, he's alive. Holy cow. Like, it's like like a ghost. That dude had climbed the mast. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he did it, but that's what he had done. And he comes shimmering down the mast. And when I see that guy, oh, it's just a profound sense of relief. Like, oh my God, I am so glad to see you. And I am scared to death. We're... We're going to die here. Cameron's fear is temporarily washed away as he processes the fact that Charlie is alive. But in the midst of the still raging storm, there's hardly time to celebrate. Remember that gunshot-like pow Cameron heard in the last episode? It's the jib sail come loose, shredding apart in the roaring winds, and it must be replaced. Charlie's very matter-of-fact. He's like, all right, oh, Hiroki, hey, let's do this. And so we all, we have our roles. Charlie and I are talking. We probably don't need Hiroki anymore. We sent Hiroki back down below. And he goes, I'm going to go back and finish tying up the sail, and we got to bring the other sail down. And I'm like, okay, let me get the autopilot set, and I'll come join you. He's like, you think it'll handle? Like, I I got it. I got it. So I kind of get the – we have a wind vane that helps steer the boat. And so kind of get that set up, and and I go back up, and – and we're, you know, tying the sail off like it's supposed to. And now we have to go up and the sail that had been just being destroyed. We have to bring that down. But the waves remain relentless, making the task of replacing the sail all the more difficult. He's lowering it. And I'm up on the bowsprit, which is like, if you think about like a teeter-totter. So in the middle, that's the nice place to be because that place, you know, it bounces the least. The front end of the boat, like on the the very bowsprit, that's like the far end of the seesaw. That's the side that's going up and down and up and down. And when it's going down, I am getting completely dunked underwater, head and everything. So the boat comes out of the water and I'm grabbing sail and pulling sail down and then the boat starts going down and I just hold on, I take my dunking and then come up, pull more sail, hold on, take my dunking, and we get the sail, and uh, kind of get the, all the sail back on board, because you don't want it to go, if the sail gets underneath the boat, that can also make the boat trip and, and go upside down. It was horrible. If the experience sounds exhausting, not unlike a form of torture, 
That's exactly what it felt like. Just it's complete sensory overload. It's one thing if it's if it's deafening. Like nobody likes like, you know, the deafening roar of something. Like that that's discombobulating. Now you are deafening roar and you're pitching, you know, straight down and straight up. So now, you know, you're kind of being thrown around and, and bouncing off of things and have to hold on to things. And, and now that sucks. And now you're getting dumped with water. You know, nobody likes that. Now you're trying to, all of those, you know, combined together uh, really takes an immense toll on you. As the two finish taking down the damaged jib, Cameron is stunned by how stoic and steadfast Charlie has continued to remain throughout the chaos. And then Charlie comes up to me. He's like, okay, I'm going to go below if you don't need me. I'm like, I think I'm going to die here. He's like, totally calm. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I don't think I need you anymore. Why don't you get some sleep? I'll wake you up when it's time. As Cameron finds himself alone on the deck once more, he begins to let go of his fear, allowing the thought that this will be the night that he, that they might die to leave him. For the moment, the boat remains intact. Its crew all aboard, safe and sound. They have survived together. And I, so I started thinking to myself, like, I, I must be a baby. Like, I'm scared to death. He's clearly not scared at all. This is probably nothing. And I'm just making a big deal out of it. So, so I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be super scared. I, I got this, you know. Though the storm finally passes, it leaves behind roiling waves and howling winds that refuse to die. When daylight finally comes, Cameron, Charlie, and Hiroki take stock of their badly battered boat. We get through the worst of the storm, so the waves are no longer 25 feet, they're just 17 feet. And the winds aren't 80 knots anymore, now they're just 40 knots. But any sailor knows, I mean, 40 knots and, and 18 foot seas is, is a horrible condition. And now, like, the boat's kind of starting to fall apart piece by piece. They are clearly not out of the woods yet. The storm has taken its toll, not only on the three of them, but on the Lilano herself. The jib was destroyed, and so we bring that down, and then the, the mainsail starts to rip. We pull that down, and we have to put up the other jib that's, that's not as strong as the storm jib. And so we've got that up, and, and we're... We're trying to sew the mainsail back together. Repairing the sails is a problem compounded not only by the constant motion of the wave-tossed boat, but by equipment that is woefully outdated and ill-suited for the job. When I bought the boat, it came with a sail repair kit. And, you know, I had read some survival stories. I knew that you needed a sail repair kit, so I had one. It was great. However, it was the sail repair kit that came with the boat in 1976. And so, like, sailcloth material, it's thick canvas, and it is, I mean, it is thick. It is super thick. And so, literally, we take the needle from the sail repair kit, and the first time we try to use it, it breaks. I mean, we don't even get one stitch in, and it breaks. Ah. Uh, but I went to officer candidate school, and at officer candidate school, they gave you a uniform repair kit, that had like six needles in it or seven needles and some thread. And so I'm like, oh, I've got my officer candidate school uniform repair kit. And these needles 
are sewing needles. They're the same type of sewing needle you use to sew, to sew a button back on a polyester shirt. These needles are in no way, shape, or form designed to penetrate sailcloth. Salty Sea Dog Charlie is the only one on board who knows how to work a needle and thread. But as he begins patching the sail, it doesn't take 15 minutes before his fingers are bloody. And so now, you know, he's taken uh, cloth and, and tape and, you know, tape it over his fingers to try and, you know, sail this. But now, I mean, you gotta, the boat is bouncing up and down. We're still in, you know, 15 foot waves. And the boat is bouncing up and down like crazy, trying to sew thick sailcloth with a tiny needle that's bending and, and he's trying not to break it and it's cutting into his fingers and his fingers are becoming a bloody mess. The task is slow and painful, but Charlie manages to finish the job. And we go to raise it just in time because as we're raising it, we notice that there's a tear in the jib that we've been flying. So, oh, we got it, now we gotta repair this thing. So we pull the jib down. But in order to patch the newly damaged sail, Charlie tells Cameron and Hiroki that they're going to have to help. An emergency sewing lesson ensues even as the winds continue to tear at the sails. And we're in this constant thing where like we get a sail repaired and then, and then another one rips. And then we bring that one down and we repair that one and then the one that's up starts to rip. And we bring that one down and so it's this, you're feeling like we gotta, we gotta sew faster, we gotta sew faster because if we don't have a sail, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna flip. The struggle to keep a functional sail aloft threatens to become a losing battle, resulting in a round-the-clock effort on the part of all three men. So you wake up, drive for eight hours, sew sails for eight hours, and sleep for eight hours. The most sensitive part of your hand is, is your fingertips. And that's the part of our hands that were just getting, you know, destroyed by, by trying to sew. It turns out Hiroki was really good at it. I mean, once, once Charlie showed us how it was done, Hiroki was a machine. You know, I would get a certain amount of sail sewn during my eight hours. Charlie would get a certain amount of sales sold during, and then Hiroki was like a prolific, like I mean that guy, he could really repair a sale. Assessing the state of his gored fingers, Cameron decides it's time to rely on machine power, only to make a disheartening discovery. And so I go to start the motor, and the motor won't start. I check the oil, and I realize that there's seawater where the oil should be. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is bad. And so what I, what I work out has happened is that, you know, the motor has an exhaust, but these waves that are coming from behind the boat are so huge that they're pushing water up the exhaust. And even though there's a valve that's supposed to prevent water from coming back in, it's clearly been overwhelmed by water. Cameron has brought extra oil, but only enough to top things off not nearly enough to completely drain the affected oil and refill the motor. We have to figure out a way to use the oil that's in the motor. So we drain the oil into some of the, uh, what we had been using for water. We had these five gallon you know, water containers. And so, so I took some of the five gallon water containers that we had, one of them that we had already used, and I drained all the oil and seawater into that. And the idea was, they'll separate. But we're in 15 foot waves. And so 
you know, the jug is getting sloshed around and we're getting sloshed around. And so the it's constantly like remixing and remixing and remixing. So then I came up with an idea. I put a tiny pinhole in the bottom of the five gallon water bucket and the water starts coming out just one drop at a time. And so the oil's on top, the water's on the bottom, they're mixing, but they're not, they're not mixing all the way back down to the bottom. And so, and the oil is, is thicker and more viscous than the water. And so I'm, I'm hoping that my little pinhole is small enough that drops of water will come out, but oil won't come out. Now we just have to, to wait, but it's taking forever. So I ended up like, maybe I'll put another pinhole, maybe just like, like, like one more. And um, so now we got a couple of pinholes and, and water is just kind of slowly dripping out. And now we just have to wait. But not only is the Lilano tapped out with regard to man and machine power, but electrical power as well. The wind generator is generating electricity, but at one point the, the wind generator has a safety feature where when the winds are stronger than 80 miles an hour, the blades start to stall. And so the night and the next day when we were at our worst, the blades on the wind generator kept stalling. That means it was, it was over 80 mile an hour winds. So the wind generator, it got a little overheated. Now it's down, it's less than 80 knots. It's spinning, but it's not making power like it's supposed to. Something about the safety feature to protect it just didn't work. Something got burned out. So now the wind generator is not creating electricity. It's now been three days since the Lulano first collided with the storm. Cameron, Charlie, and Hiroki are suffering from mental and physical exhaustion. Even if they were to find time to rest, everything below deck is waterlogged, a situation made all the worse by the constant spray of cold water and punishing March winds. I mean, we are beat up. We haven't run the navigation lights. We haven't run the radio. We haven't run anything that's going to take electricity because, you know, we're going to need electricity to get the motor started. And, you know, if we need to make one final, please somebody rescue us radio call, we want to have enough juice to do that. And I'm looking at the map like, like, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to be able to limp this thing uh, all the way to Yokosuka? Or, you know, are we going to pull in? Iwo Jima was our next stop. Cameron struggles to maintain a sense of confidence and of hope. It is the absolute lowest point of their journey. We cannot call for rescue. You've seen how that radio works. We can keep calling all we want. Doesn't mean squad if nobody's there on the same frequency listening for it. I mean, I got an EPIR, but... That's for emergencies. This is not an emergency? No. This is what we call up shit's creek without a paddle. EPIRB, you just flip it on, basically transmits an SOS and lets anyone within a thousand miles know your ship is sinking and you just pray someone happens to pick it up and they got the resource to send someone out. And we ain't sinking, but we are sunk. Gotta be another 800 miles to Japan. Close to landfalls Iwo Jima. Winds keep up like this, we could probably put in there in another day or so. There are people on Iwo Jima? Not really. It's a Japanese military base, more or less. 
sort of like Wake Island. What do we do when we get there? Well, we try and find someone that'll take us to Japan. Maybe a supply ship or a plane or something. Or, I mean, I guess at that point, you guys can decide for yourself what you want to do. But what about the boat? The boat? The boat stays on Iwo Jima. At least until I can pay to get her repaired. But at this point, maybe that's where she's meant to die. I don't know. I do not understand. Cameron is saying if we go to Iwo Jima, trip is over. Yeah. That's about the size of it. Oh. At least if we made landfall at Iwo Jima, I'd be able to call home for Easter. Promised my mom I'd call her on Easter Sunday. You do Easter in Poland, Charlie? Yes. Very big deal. The whole weekend. Friday we fast, and then Saturday make baskets for blessing at church and for eating at Sunday breakfast. And then Monday is Schmigestingus, which my children enjoy very much, more even than chocolate or the Easter bunny, I think. Schmigestingus? Uh, how do you say it? What? Like a water balloon fight? Uh, sometimes balloons, usually just buckets, but water everywhere, the whole day. The kids go crazy. Yeah, well, all due respect, after what we've been through last few days, I, I think I'll pass on Schmigestingus this year. Ah, and we have already had our Easter miracle. I came back from the dead, yeah? <laughs> when I see my girls again, I will tell them that miracles are possible. I will tell them their papa is a man who does not quit. So what am I hearing? No Iwo Jima. No Iwo Jima. Well, everybody gets a vote. Hiroki? No Iwo Jima. Yokosuka! And then, at last, the tide finally turns. So finally, after, after a couple of days, the jug with the water and oil is down to mostly just oil. And so I pour that, and then some of the oil that I, you know, pour that back into the motor, and then finish off, you know, with the oil that I had brought with me, and start the motor, and the motor works. That was probably, like, you know, one of the greatest triumph moments. I mean, I just remember when the motor started, and it kept running, and the propeller worked, and the boat moved forward. Oh, my God. That was... Oh, it was so nice. It's a huge boost in morale for the crew of the Little No. It finally feels as if their destination is within sight. We're now pretty close to being, we're close to Japan. The, the wind is down enough that the sails aren't ripping every time we put them up. The motor's running pretty good. You know, we've, we've passed Iwo Jima and we're like, all right, this is it. We got it. You know what I mean? We are going to do this. We are going to sail into Tokyo triumphant. But as they make their way into Tokyo Bay, they realize they're not home free yet. The boat has just entered one of the busiest ports in the world. And those ships are massive. And they are not looking out for a 32-foot sailboat. You know, they are designed that they, you know, you've got these, you know, multi-ton shipping containers and oil tankers they are designed to not hit each other. They are designed to be big enough that a little sailboat sees them and gets out of the way. But I mean, they, I mean, they're everywhere. They're just everywhere. And then as we get closer and closer to Japan, now you've got all these fishing boats and the, and the fishing boats are, they want to be where I want to be, which is not in the fishing lane or not in the shipping lanes. 
And they don't follow any rhyme or reason. They're just kind of following the fish and wherever the fish are. And so they're trolling nets behind them. And they're, you know, all of these, all of a sudden it becomes like a, like a traffic control nightmare. Don't hit the shipping containers. Don't hit the oil tankers. Don't hit the fishing nets. Don't hit the fishing boats. And so that was like super stressful. As they draw nearer to land, Cameron needs to get a message to his base as the Navy is inevitably wondering what has become of their newly assigned transfer. It's been two weeks since before they encountered the storm that the Lilano has connected with anyone in the outside world. One of the boats passes and the guy has a clear American accent. And I'm like, hey, do you have a ship to shore phone? Like, do you have a way of calling people on shore? And he's like, yeah, of course we do. And I'm like, can you call this number? And I gave him the number to my job where I was going. I said, please call that number. Tell them that Lieutenant Thurman is alive and I will be there tomorrow. And he's like, you're a what? And I'm like, yeah, man. He said, like, I'm sailing from Hawaii. And he's like, what? on that thing? And I said, yeah. And uh, he's like, man, 100%, I will make that phone call for you. At last, the Lilano approaches the naval base. And I, you know, call up the Yokosuka Marina and, you know, I identify myself, uh, you know, Lieutenant Thurman on the sailing vessel Lilino coming from Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, request to enter. And the guy that's on the, on the bridge of the warship comes on the radio and he's like, hey, did I hear you right? Did you just say you came from Hawaii? And I said, yes, we, we left Hawaii 42 days ago. He's like, you sailed 42 days on that? He's like, man, he's like, this boat comes in tomorrow. I'm gonna buy you a drink. And I was like, absolutely, you know, just come on down to the, come on down to the boat. We pull into the marina and it's early morning. You know, it's just after sunrise and it's the cherry blossoms are still there. So on the Yokosuka Navy base, there's all these, uh, you know, cherry blossom trees. And so, you know, we step off the boat and the, the cherry blossoms are in full bloom. And it's like, oh my God, we made it. Like we actually made it. The boat looks decidedly worse for wear, as does its crew. In preparation for his new appointment, Cameron shaves the beard he's grown over the last month, cleans himself up, and reports for duty. Finally. I gotta go to work, and I'm a little late. You know, I had told him I was gonna be there, and I'm, you know, two weeks late. I haven't, you know, been in touch with him for a while. So I, I go in, and they take me straight to the Admiral's office. It's a two-star Admiral. And I walk in, and he's like, hey! He's like, it's a good thing you told that guy to call me. And I was like, well, why? And he, he hands me a message. He says, because I was going to send that first thing this morning. And he hands me this message, and it's a radio message, the official Navy traffic, that Lieutenant Thurman has been lost at sea and is presumed dead. <laughs> and I was like, why? Having survived the 4,000-mile journey, it's time for Cameron, Hiroki, and Charlie to celebrate. Leaving their waterlogged belongings aboard the Lilano, they head off base for a night on the town. This is my first 
you know, meal in Japan. And it's a tempura restaurant, which is basically Japanese fried food, where everything on the menu is deep battered fried. And man, I felt like I was like, I am at home. This, this is just like being at home. So we ate out. We had a great time, uh, you know, telling stories. And as the evening wears on, conversation inevitably turns to the night of the storm. And, uh, and Charlie goes, I tell you what, man, the night when all the sails ripped, he said, I was scared. I thought we were going to die. But you were, he looked at me and he said, Cameron, you were so calm. And you're like, I figured, I looked at you and I said, well, this is his boat. He knows what his boat can handle. If he's calm, it's got to be fine. And I'm like, my, I'm like, Charlie, Charlie, I thought we were going to die. <laughs> like, I literally thought that we were going to die. And I looked at you and I was like, well, Charlie's calm. Right? So this guy sailed the North Atlantic. So, I mean, he's seen bad stuff. If he doesn't think this is bad, it's it's not bad. And I'm just being a baby. And if he's calm, I should be calm. And so, yeah, Charlie and I were like, yeah, we totally, we totally like uh, faked each other out, you know? And it wasn't just like, you know, we could have died on the night of the storm. You know, we could have died two days later or three days later. Or if we had, you know, got the the boat going. We could have ended up in the doldrums and died. I mean, there was all there was a lot of ways where you know there were a lot of paths where things were going going bad. And it was it was so awesome to kind of be together and to have time in a comfortable situation to reminisce and really to enjoy kind of the victory. To enjoy you know the fact that we did it. We did it together. And so the journey has finally come to an end. There's a park right beside the marina where I parked my sailboat. And so the three of us go up and we stand there. The cherry blossoms are still in bloom. And literally, I mean, it is the last day. The wind came the next day and blew all the cherry blossoms away. Uh, but that day, there's still, you know, beautiful cherry blossoms on the tree. And uh, we get somebody to take a picture of the three of us uh, under the cherry blossoms. And, and uh, that, that's the picture that was in the newspapers. It's, it's a picture that I still have up on, my, uh, up on the wall in my living room today. Cameron and Hiroki accompany Charlie to the airport as he prepares to fly back to Poland and be reunited with his family. So we arrive at the airport and, and you know, we're saying goodbye to Charlie and th this guy's a, he's a professional sailor. You know, he's a North Atlantic professional sailor. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how bad things were and, you know, just so proud of how we had overcome. You know, it's one thing when you're in it and, and your fingers are bleeding and you're hungry and you're tired and you're soaking wet and your bed is wet because of all the seawater that's come in it and you're miserable. Uh, but when you get through that, and, and and really, like, the teamwork that it required for us to get through that and how, uh, how well we had all ended up working together and how uh, significant contributions each, each one of us had made. And again, Charlie was like, we could have died. You know, Charlie was like, I th that's probably as close to being killed at sea as, as I've ever 
been and I, I ever hope to be. And as for Hiroki? He stuck around long enough to say like, hey, you know, these are good surf spots. You know, like this is this neighborhood is really cool. I think you would like that neighborhood. Ah, everybody's stuffy in that neighborhood. Don't go there. The surf here sucks. The surf here is good. So, so before he left, he uh, he hooked me up. He set that set me down with a map of the area and like pointed out like all the all the places that I should go. But no, he went back. Uh, he went back to Hawaii, and uh, I think he was very very proud of himself as well. Yeah, I think the first half of the trip, he was looking for adventure and he found misery. You know, it was just hot and boring and not enough food and this sucks. You know, he wanted a great adventure. He got an adventure and you know, we were talking about, you know, he got way more adventure than, than he had anticipated. Uh, he, he actually said, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think I'm gonna uh, buy a boat now. That may have been his last uh, time sailing, but I don't know, you know, who knows? Indeed, Cameron does not know where Hiroki's wanderlust ultimately took him, nor what Charlie's life is like today. I was in Japan for three years. We probably kept in touch for about four or five years. Life gets busy, time marches on. Hiroki never seemed to stay in the same place for very long, while Cameron eventually loses Charlie's information, until eventually, the three of them lose touch altogether. This is like, you know, before there were cell phones and you just had a cell phone and, and you kept the same number everywhere you go. You know, you, everywhere was a new address and everything. So we lost touch and weren't able to kind of hook back up. As we told you in our first episode, Hiroki and Charlie are not the actual names of Cameron's crewmates. A concerted effort was made to track down both men for this podcast, with Cameron unable to find a private investigator willing to take on the search. As for the boat that had ferried them all those miles that the three of them had put so much literal sweat and blood into, Cameron had intended to pick up where he left off back in Hawaii, living aboard his floating condominium in Japan, whenever not on base or a submarine. But when he learns he won't qualify for an overseas housing allowance, if he chooses to live aboard the Lulano, he takes up residence in a spacious pad on the water, well away from busy Tokyo or the naval base. In the downtime, he continues to upgrade the boat and use it recreationally. Today, Cameron has only fond memories of his time in Japan. It's so funny. I mean, I didn't want to go... You know, it was number sixteenth on my seventeenth on my on my wish list, and uh, and it ended up just being a phenomenal, you know, place to live, a phenomenal experience. I ended up living in what was the best part of Japan. I, I can't imagine anybody having a better experience than I did. And then I was far enough away from the. I was the only American out there, so people would stop me and just want to practice English, and so like they'd be like, "Hey, can I practice English?" Sure, let's go get some coffee. Though the relationship with the girl back in Hawaii ends up dissipating not long after Cameron's arrival in Japan, he soon meets the woman who would eventually become his wife. He also chooses to switch professional gears and attend medical school at the Medical University of South Carolina, back in his home state. And so I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just keep going west and I'll go through the, um, I'll go through the Suez Canal and I'll, and I'll cause it be easy. This, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly there, nearly there. By this point, I, w I was engaged, and and my fiance was like, "Hell no, that's the dumbest idea ever." And I'm like, "No, the boat's much better shape now, and I know what I'm doing." And 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 she was like, "No, you you were late to your job. If you're late to med school, you won't start. 
this is a big deal. You can't screw this up. You have to, and like we have to get married and you can't be late for our wedding. Cameron realizes the time has come at last for he and the Lilano to part ways. Ironically, he ends up selling the boat to someone whose path he nearly crossed back on Wake Island. So uh, there was a guy out there in Japan who uh, was also an adventurous soul. And uh, he was like, that's the type of boat I want. I want like a ocean-going boat. And, and it turns out, while I was in Wake Island, there was one other sailboat in Wake Island. So there was a small, it was a little bigger than mine. It was about a 45-foot sailboat. And so the, the crew of that boat made it to Wake Island and then left the boat in Wake Island and flew to Japan. And then they were going to come back and get the boat, but hadn't come back to get the boat yet. The guy that bought my boat was one of those crew members. Introduced by a mutual friend, the two remain in contact during Cameron's time in Japan. So I called him and I was like, hey man, I'm going to have to sell my boat. Do you want it? And he's like, absolutely, absolutely, I'll buy it. And I assumed it was going to stay in Japan. You know, it, it was back home in the, you know, the town that it was built in. And yet, it would not be the last time he lay eyes upon the boat. Almost a decade after I had left uh, Japan, I'm on a work trip for the Air Force. And my team and I are in Hawaii. And I said, hey, let's go to... Um, you know, let's go to where I used to live. There's a good restaurant there. We'll eat there. And, you know, we'll get to look out over the water. And that's when I looked out and I, and they were like, hey, Doc, show us what your boat looked like. And I'm like, well, it, it looked exactly like that one. That's my boat. It's right there. Which means the Lilano had left, then returned to the place it was built in Yokosuka, Japan, back in 1976, only to now return to the place Cameron had first encountered it. Was it a sign? My goal is to, to retire and uh, be able to afford uh, to go back to Hawaii. And if that boat is still there, I am going to do everything I can to try and buy it back because I would love to have my boat back and to have it back in Hawaii would just be, would be the absolute best. I'm just hoping it's still there. Despite all the turns his career has taken, from the Navy to the Air Force, where he was tasked with examining the effects of PTSD on airmen carrying out drone strikes, to his career today as an ER doctor, Cameron looks back on the voyage as perhaps the most profound turning point of his life. It's been over 20 years since I made this trip. And when I look back today at how this trip changed me, I think it really profoundly changed me in two specific ways. The, the first is, I mean, what, when I left the dock in Hawaii, I thought that I was a brave guy. You know, I mean, people would tell me like, oh, you know, you realize this is dangerous, right? Like, hey, you realize you could die, right? And and I knew they were right. And at the time, I really meant it when I said, I'm not afraid of dying. But I was like mid-20s, and I didn't really know anything about dying. And it turns out that when I was faced with the actual chance that I was going to die, I was scared. I mean, literally very afraid. There were several times when I really and truly thought, I I'm gonna die. This is it, we're just gonna die out here. And whenever that would, would start to creep in, I would just think, 
how do I get out of this? Like, like wh- what's the next step? And so after, you know, after kind of facing that a couple of times, I just kind of wouldn't let it come in anymore. Like, you know, like, no, it, the, just focus on, it was a constant focusing on what's the next problem to solve. All right, we're going to work this problem until we solve it. And then, and then what's the next problem? All right, we're going to work that problem until it's solved. And what's the next problem? And it just became like a very kind of, you know, you just look at the next thing in front of you and you do that. You know, it's hard to, you know, think about this long journey, but you can, you can absolutely just take one more step. And that's what we did. Today, I am often with patients who are facing the real prospect of their death for the first time. And, you know, people act in all different ways when they're faced with that prospect. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you've thought about it. Uh, The reality is you have no idea how you are going to react when you face death until you've been there. That is a very unique emotional experience that you only know when you're there. And so, you know, I I look at my patients and, and I see in their eyes this raw emotion and I know what that feels like and I get it. You know, sometimes, you know, people act straight. I mean, some people are stoic. Some people are kicking and screaming. Some people do both. Uh, Some people act very wild and they do very wild things. And because I've been there, I get it. However they're acting, that's how they're acting. And I'm going to help them get through this the best way I can. Cameron is even more clear-eyed and emphatic about the second way in which he feels he was transformed by the experience. Realizing that Charlie was alive, that Charlie had actually survived, was the most profound sense of relief I have ever felt in my entire life. I realized right then that, hey, it's not about me. It's about us. It's about how are we going to survive. It's about how are we going to prevail. How are we going to get through this? And long after this journey, it's been about how are my interactions with other people affecting them? Because it's not about me. It's about how I interact with the world and, and how the world is either better or not better because of it. Uh, and I, I hope and pray that it's that it's better because of my interactions, um, and and I'm not perfect, and and when it's not, uh, I I work to go back and fix it. And that's something that even today. So today, um, as an emergency medicine physician, I'm also I also teach medical students, and I teach resident physicians. One of the things that I hammer into them is that. This is not about you. This is about your patient. When we're in the trauma bay, if we're coding uh, a critically ill patient, it is not about you. This is not your story. Over and above the physical journey from Hawaii to Japan, what Cameron discovered within his own story is that the inner journey, the lifelong quest to continue to find and grow into the most true version of oneself, ultimately relies on the ability to embrace something even greater. When Hiroki and Charlie and I left the dock in Hawaii, we were three different men on three different journeys. 
we all just kind of happen to be in the same place at the same time. However, in order to survive, we had to be a team. And we had to rely on each other. We had to put our lives in each other's hands. That made us each a better man. I know it made me a better person. Uh, and I am sure that it made them better men as well, too. Surviving the Lilino is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Cameron Thurman. Cameron is writing a book about his experience on the Lilino and we will update the show notes with a link to the book when it is available. Starring Henry Monfries as Cameron, Jonathan Regier as Charlie, and Austin Kuniyoshi as Hiroki. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Andres Coca. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.